All right. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is Nikki Acosta, and this is Cloud Unfiltered. Say hi, Val. Hey, Nikki. It's good to be back with you. And we have an awesome guest with us today. Brian, introduce yourself. Hey, everyone. I'm Brian Doerr. Uh, I'm uh, very happy to be here. So Brian uh, was a part of, you were part of Zerbal Networks that was acquired by Cisco in July, and now you are StealthWatch, correct? Correct. Yeah. Awesome. The, uh, we're, we're, the entire company is now part of the StealthWatch crew um, out of Alpharetta, Georgia, and uh, our product is now StealthWatch Cloud, uh, part of the StealthWatch portfolio um, uh, effective, uh, I guess, uh, September 13th of this year. Awesome. So before, I want to know more about StealthWatch, but before we do that, take us back. Like, how'd you get into tech? Tell us about how, you know, all the way up until you got acquired. Yeah, well, uh, you know, uh, fast forwarding backward for me, I guess, uh, I've always had a technology interest. Uh, at one point, uh, pivotal for me in my, in my uh, development, I kind of realized it was kind of electrical engineering and computers, it was going to be the thing that I got most interested in. So, um, you know, my career from that point forward was uh, uh, degrees in electrical engineering and then different software and hardware engineering work. And ultimately, you know, where I, I centered my career on becoming a chief technology officer, that that goal uh, actually dated 20 years before I actually achieved it, which was pretty cool. Um, but uh, after that, uh, I, I became the chief technology officer of Savas in 2004, 2005, um, and uh, uh, got really passionate about delivering managed services in the, in the IT uh, space and did that for quite a long time. Uh, Savas was acquired by CenturyLink in um, July of 2011, and I stayed around for a while longer and eventually... Uh, through a connection with Dr. Patrick Crowley out of Washington University, uh, started supporting his efforts with respect to observable networks, um, a SaaS capability focused on security, very cool tech, uh, and as a consequence, uh, he and I worked well together, and he asked me to be the CEO of the company, and that happened in August of 2013, and he and I uh, kind of operated observable networks together as we grew through 2017 when we were acquired by uh, by Cisco that's the that's the fast version of a career that started in 1985 and not, that was not fast <laughs> is not a, wasn't a large company or I'm sorry observable networks wasn't a large company so you did a lot with a very small group of people yeah we uh, Patrick and I have been blessed with a uh, just an incredible uh, team of people that we've had become part of the company um, you know, the, uh, the tech with it, the engineering team built was, you know, it's just been great. Um, and, uh, and, uh, you know, 14 people was not a lot to, to, to have, uh, to build a, the, the company we built. Our sales team, you know, has been incredible as they help us kind of establish a brand and offer a new capability in the marketplace. We're, you don't build a startup like ours um, without great people helping. It's not a one person or a two person job. It's a it's a community. It's a family kind of thing that that you have to have a lot of people who are just believers at a passionate level and capable with skills that they can bring to bear. And things have to work on a number of dimensions for startups to go. I mean, you read about the successes, but behind of all those successes are a lot of that just didn't quite click or didn't quite work. And 
There are a number of reasons why, but if you don't have the right people, it's not going to happen. How, wow. how important was, was your culture to your success? Yeah, it was absolutely essential. Um, the, uh, uh, the group that we have, uh, you know, kind of helped us establish an operating paradigm that, that gave us an ability to produce new capabilities quickly, um, gave us an ability to sense the market accurately or reasonably accurately anyway, and, and um, spend our development efforts on things that were really going to matter. Um, and that's, you know, that's the key, right? Because with a startup, there's only so much runway you've got. It's usually a function of how much funding you've got. And if you don't kind of achieve a certain critical mass or a liftoff by, uh, by the time you reach the end of that runway and either get more funding or run into some other opportunities, you're in trouble, right? I mean, there's, uh, there's, there's not much at the end of the runway to, to land on. So um, you've got to make good choices. Uh, you've also got to avoid making bad choices, um, which is, you know, a lot, a lot's to be said for the paths that you don't take that would have kind of run you off the rails. And, uh, you know, I think Patrick and I, as we, we ran the company and as we asked our employees for help to get things done or to, to, uh, to take on certain, um, tasks related to helping us sense the market or deliver new features or, um, help a customer experience just be really phenomenal they always did that kind of thing with a plum and uh, and we just avoided the really bad decisions and kind of made a series of good ones. Hey, one question about that. You know, I've heard one thing about startups is that, you know, there's, there's all these different opportunities and, and you got to go after the right one and not get distracted. Were there some times where you guys had to do that? Do you remember any like decisions where you had to go and uh, say, no, we're not going to focus on this right now. We got to focus on this. I, I just imagine with, you know, only 14 people really having to, to, to struggle to make sure that you, you're, you're aiming in the right direction. Yeah, no, um, you know, you're, you're, uh, you're always uh, challenged with recognizing when you're kind of gathering information and trying to inform your decisions as effectively as possible with as much data as you can get. And then make it, you know, not just be in information gathering mode forever, eventually make a decision and then commit to that. Right. Uh, one example of that in our situation was we had been uh, pursuing the um, the market of, of kind of enterprise on-prem solutions for quite a while. We were growing, but not growing you know, very quickly. Um, There's a lot of noise in the market. Everybody's a next generation security capability. Sorting, you know, what's going to work and not going to work was something that, you know, many of our potential customers were forced to do. And frankly, a no brand kind of brand new startup might be the answer. But for many, that wasn't where they were going to turn, right? They're going to turn to a Cisco first in a very confusing type of market. Um, yeah. But uh, but uh, in the middle of 2015, uh, 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 Amazon released uh, uh, a new capability in their environment called VPC flow logs. Getting a little bit technical here, but the bottom line was it enabled us to be an effective, very effective, very appealing solution uh, in Amazon's uh, people who were deploying their, their service, their, their applications in Amazon. It gave mm -hmm. us just a great interface, a great experience, um, and and uh, all of a sudden, all the folks who had innumerable choices on prem and were maybe not so interested because just the the noise in the market 
saw us as a solution in this space that they had limited visibility, they had limited um, choices, and we started to really grow. We just had great opportunities emerging, large and small companies, um, lots of growth in the Amazon marketplace. So the total addressable market, the TAM was big and growing, and it was just an exciting time. But back to your question, we made a commitment you know, uh, having pursued uh, a certain set of markets and customers at one point to just redirect our marketing, redirect our sales efforts, redirect our technology development, all toward making that Amazon marketplace happen for us. Um, and if that had been misread, we would have kind of crashed and burned because we had, you know, really made a hard choice to make that be our, uh, you know, where we committed ourselves and where we were going to succeed or fail. And as it turns out, we succeeded. We still have on-prem capabilities as, you know, I'm happy to get into as well, but our marketing, our technology development, our sales efforts, all of that was committed to that direction. So, so tell us about Stuffwatch. What is yeah. it? Give us your, what, give us your, uh, your, your elevator pitch. And, and tell us why, why is it something Cisco is interested in acquiring? I mean, how did it, What's what's the tech like? What is what's so what's so cool about it? How to differentiate all that stuff? Sure. So the tech um, is a, first of all, it's a SaaS service. Um, so you consume StealthWatch as a subscription, as opposed to an appliance or a um, licensed piece of software um, that you license for multiple years. So that's the first thing. You know, and if you think about IT and where it's going, it's going to uh, subscription services. That's what people want to consume. It's more flexible. It gives them more choices to respond. It's faster in many respects. So, you know, as a delivery vehicle, uh, as a way to structure our, our offer, we thought we were headed where the puck was going. As a tech, what the tech is, is it's about um, a, a technology we call entity modeling. Um, in our SaaS service, what we're doing is collecting network metadata and other log files, but primarily network IP metadata, like who are you talking to, what time of day are you talking, how many bytes are you transferring back and forth, so forth. Um, and we are using that metadata to build models of the behavior that, that, that the endpoints on the network are demonstrating. So just imagine a collection of laptops and phones and um, servers, uh, all on a corporate network, um, or the same kind of thing, only in a Amazon uh, deployed environment, all generating IP traffic, communicating amongst them, amongst the devices themselves, and also in uh, out to the internet uh, and back from the internet into the application. All of that communication gives you the basis upon which you can build a behavioral model, not of the network and aggregate, but of each and every individual asset or endpoint on the network. We build those models dynamically. Uh, we identify the endpoints that are in that environment dynamically. And then we apply behavior uh, understandings through time so that we can recognize when an asset changes its behavior in a way that you should be concerned. And that's how we spot threats. Observables claim to fame and StealthWatch's claim to fame is we are we can spot problems, the possible penetrations or threats that are operating in your network by, by recognizing automatically for you the changes in behavior that are in kind of early indicators of compromise. And that's what we do. Um, the StealthWatch uh, 
brand in general, there, there, there was a stealth watch in Cisco, obviously prior to us arriving. Um, right. And uh, stealth watch there is an appliance based solution that in many respects does similar things. Um, and so C Cisco, I think, saw the synergy between the on-prem version that was the, the stealth watch, uh, legacy stealth watch, the, uh, the opportunity for observable, which uh, with a very similar or very familiar go-to-market story uh, aligned with stealth watch to come in and be the cloud version. And uh, together we could, we could tackle uh, uh, web Amazon environments, public cloud environments in general, on-prem environments for large enterprises and on-prem environments for uh, the mid-market. So, so the mid-market, who, who, who's using this? Who are some of your customers that you yeah. may be allowed to talk about? If not, you can talk about industries where this is. And, and, and as, as just to fall into that too, Nick, is like, why would somebody want this? Like, I understand security is huge, but why is it so huge? Like, what's the, what's, what's the deal? Like, why do people want this? Yeah, there's, there's, so let me give you two reasons why people want it um, and, uh, or would want it, um, and, uh, or maybe three, and, and, you know, you'll kind of, kind of put it all together, I think, once you have a sense for all three of them. The first one that I like to talk about is this kind of historical problem or, or challenge with respect to security. Security in general is oftentimes about prevention. Um, many of the tools we have in security are about preventing the bad person from getting in. Um, and that prevention often depends on knowing who the, the bad guy is, knowing what his uh, signature might be, knowing what his originating domain might be, knowing what his motivation might be, knowing you know, the vector of attack that they're going to exploit. Um, right. All of those things are kind of presumed to be known um, and then prevented uh, from getting in. Unfortunately, um, you know, the reality is that security threats are growing in all of those dimensions so fast that the idea that you can know these things in advance is really uh, becoming an outdated idea. Mm. Um, the reason why uh, StealthWatch uh, Cloud is, is interesting to folks is because we don't depend on knowing those things. Right. What we do is just build an understanding of normal in your environment on an asset by asset basis. And then uh, we recognize when those assets start to behave abnormally. Um, uh, and, and so we don't really care motivation, angle, uh, threat vector, uh, technology attack style. We don't care about any of that. We just want to recognize the change in behavior. Uh, to, to Nikki's question about who cares, who buys. Um, uh, that what we find in the on-prem StealthWatch services two primary customers on-prem assets like customers own networks and their data centers, and um, uh, uh, public cloud where they where they have their Amazon environments. Um, and the um, the the real uh, opportunity here for the folks on-prem tends to be people who have compliance requirements, people who can't um, satisfy their requirements in a way that uh, lets them um, you know, meet whatever it is, their financial requirements or their healthcare requirements or whatever. Um, uh, we, have to, we, we help them with that. Uh, in the cloud, we're helping with visibility. We're helping people see their cloud assets in ways they've never been able to see before uh, based on the behavior of those assets. So really looking at sort of a, a different type of behavior, because, you know, I, I was reading something that you wrote, uh, I think it was in 2016, 
on your uh, WordPress site. And you were talking about security maturity and how there's a lot of people who just don't want to share their intelligence. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, um, you know, there's a lot of effort in the industry to get folks to collaborate on the attacks that they're seeing and the, the fences that they're having be successful. But, you know, at the end of the day, that requires people to divulge something they don't want to divulge in many cases. And that's that, hey, we were hit. Right. Um, and that's just, I mean, it's, it's lots of folks spending a lot of time trying to make it safe to do that. Um, but you know, there's some, there's some work, uh, I, I think there's just some attitude things that are going to have to, uh, uh, continue to evolve before that becomes uh, real common. Um, our goal is to not, again, you know, back to my point about not needing to know the threat in advance, just know that, Hey, I have an ability to recognize changes in behavior in my environment. Um, regardless of how they originate. And by the way, that can be an internal problem as well, a compromised employee that uh, all of a sudden starts to exfiltrate a lot of data from a database. Maybe they've uh, decided to leave and they're going to take a customer set of customer records with them. Um, uh, you know, so recognizing not just things that have come in from the outside, but changes in behavior that originate from the inside all fit this category of behavior uh, anomaly detection. That's fascinating. I I, yeah. uh, I can see definitely see the value in that. So, what is your reaction when you see like the Equifax breach, or you know the the Yahoo is actually way more billions of records than they thought it was? Like, what? Do, how do you? Yeah. How do you analyze that from where you're sitting? Uh, first, you know you having come from not just observable, but my prior uh, role as chief technology officer at a service provider, um, you see uh, a lot of how real security and the challenges that security analysts have uh, given the tools they've got. You see the challenge that exists to spot these threats and you see all the vulnerabilities that exist. Vulnerabilities that exist because they've never been identified in, you know, in operating systems and in, in, in devices, but also vulnerabilities that just haven't been patched because patching is a difficult thing to keep up with. And um, you just, I guess my, my point is to say, given all that vision, uh, I, all I can say is I'm not surprised. Uh, I, you know, you hear about these massive breaches, you hear about the compromise and critical uh, uh, information and and having seen what I've seen, I, I can just tell you, I, I'm, I'm no longer surprised. Uh, as, and, and I think that's probably a reaction that most people have because of the frequency with which these large uh, breaches are announced. So that's going to create a numbing effect on its own. But having seen from the inside the challenges we've got with delivering good security, and all I can say is, yep, that's, uh, uh, that's kind of what you'd expect. Given a world where attacks are no longer anonymous, right? We've we've really shifted in the security challenge from uh, what I what I and others call kind of right once attack many worlds, where a relatively small number of very um, capable uh, attackers 
writing uh, a select number of, of attacks that you know they try and distribute across a broad array, thousands or millions of computers, hoping that they land in some that are vulnerable and attacks succeed. And, and oftentimes the motivation was just to say, look at my technical prowess, hmm. right? Look what I'm able to do. That's yeah. that's fundamentally not the case anymore. Now, now it's give me some Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, now <laughs> it's now it's now it's how can I disrupt your business in a very you know very critical way? How can I ex- get uh, extort money from you? How can I um, learn something about your environment that I need? Um, very well funded, uh, productionized attacking that's occurring, um, and that 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 just fundamentally changes the 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 nature of the threat in a world where our defenses haven't necessarily gotten that much better. Um, and, and so the attack situation is clear. You, you almost expect it. Wow. And do you, is this stuff that you lecture about? You said you, uh, before the show, you are, you do some, some lecturing at, uh, at a university. Tell us about that. Right. I, uh, I teach one course uh, a year at, uh, um, university in St. Louis, um, and that class is is uh, it doesn't really focus on security as much as it does um, innovation and the role that IT is having in the changing business models emerging in the world um, as a function of IT enablement um, and the fact that every company you know regardless of what industry it's in has to figure out how to embrace the opportunities that that um, information and communication technologies are creating and uh, and figure out how to leverage them to their advantage. If they don't, they'll be disrupted because every industry is becoming uh, centered on on ICT, information and computing, uh, computing technologies, and, uh, and you've got to be part of that wave or you're going to miss the boat. Do, do you find yourself getting paranoid? You know, knowing what you know, being in the seat and, and having just a kind of a a behind the curtain peek at what really happens. I mean, I can't imagine there are plenty of companies out there that are being hacked right now that don't even know it. Yeah. Yeah. There have been, you, I'm sure you've heard the phrase, there are two kinds of companies in the world, those that have been hacked and those that don't know they've been hacked. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of the, that's kind of the, the version, a version of what you've just said. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to label myself as paranoid, but you certainly have a healthy appreciation for the risks that are out there, right? Um, uh, and uh, and so, you know, with with that knowledge, uh, uh, and I think security people in general, right, uh, are are uh, a bit more skeptical, a bit more leery than maybe your average uh, person. So I think all of those things combine. I wouldn't label myself as paranoid. That seems to be a bit over the edge, but uh, but certainly appreciative of the risks and and leery of, of the vulnerabilities would be an accurate description. I saw a, a post the other day on a, on Facebook that I shared and sparked a lively debate with some of my friends, but it was about using public port chargers, like in airports and conferences, and you know the possibility that anytime you plug to charge your device into a port at the airport or anywhere else, that it could be compromised and they could be sucking all the data off your phone. Uh, <laughs> and you know, I, I think about that. I'm like, man, yes, that's something I really even thought. I've been to hundreds of conferences and I plug in my phone probably here or there a few times, and it's not something that ever crossed my mind. Public chargers, joining public Wi-Fi—I mean, all of this 
creates opportunities for you to be uh, for you to be attacked uh, at a personal level. Have your company be attacked with the information you're carrying around. Um, again, if uh, you know, frankly speaking, if somebody wants to get into your personal information or into the company information that you're carrying around, um, unless you're hyper vigilant, uh, chances are they're going to get what they want. That's just so, a fact. So uh, what, about, what pro do you have for those people who are like, okay, great. Now I may be a little paranoid, but maybe not. But what do I need to do in my personal life? Like what advice would you give someone to be able to make sure that you're securing your stuff on a personal and company level other than the Wi-Fi and the port chargers? Like, what do you do? Yeah, I mean, first, uh, you know, don't neglect your house, right, and the the uh, the, the place where you live, and and and, and, and access uh, information publicly. Um, make sure that you're running uh, good IT practice at home, which is hard for many people. But invest in a firewall. Um, you know, get it configured appropriately. Keep your uh, all of your assets patched. Run the latest operating system patches and stay up to date. Um, be uh, circumspect about things that you take advantage of in the open in the world, like public chargers and, and public Wi-Fi. Um, run encrypted tunnels whenever you can uh, when you're using uh, the internet and public internet. Um, uh, and uh, you know, there's there's basic things you can do around password management uh, that are you know I know these things don't sound particularly creative. Uh, uh, but you need to be, you know, you need to be aware and, and, and practicing them. You also need to be aware about what you're sharing on, on social media. Uh, all of those, all the information you share becomes possible avenues of, of attack against you. Things that you share might indicate passwords, where you hang out, where people might uh, uh, be able to target you. Uh, again, these are starting to sound like the words of a paranoid person and, and I'm not <laughs> saying you should adjust your lifestyle, uh, you know, radically, uh, assuming people are out to get you. Um, but, uh, a certain amount of, of, uh, care and just not being obviously careless is, uh, you know, I think what, what each of us should engage in. Maybe it would just be better just to not be on the internet at all. <laughs> yeah, that that would probably be going down the uh, uh, paranoid path, right? But it would be the you know disconnecting the air gapped network is the safer network, right? And the air gapped right. person is the safer person. But that's not really practical for anyone today. So um, you know, living with the risk and and uh, and just being prudent is about the most that that, that people can do. Hey, Brian, just going back to uh, one question back on uh, observable networks. What represents something an anomaly uh, when you guys are modeling it? And uh, is this using uh, machine learning? Uh, what is the, uh, tell us a little bit more about how, what that anomaly detection works. I'd, I'd love to know. Yeah, there are, um, there are a number of different technique, techniques that we use. Machine learning as a, as a form of, you know, more generally speaking, AI uh, is part of that uh, technique suite that we use. It's part of the techniques that we use. Um, here's an example. Um, say that you have a device operating in your network that um, never talks to the internet. Um, let's, let's say it's a video camera. Um, and that video camera every day uploads frames of video to a server where it's stored. It, 
Um, it maybe occasionally gets logged into by someone local for some kind of maintenance purpose or some kind of patch. Uh, and it routinely just downloads a, a certain amount of data every day to a server that represents the frames it's capturing. Then one day that device just wakes up apparently and starts to talk on the internet. Um, well, you'd want to know that, right? What, yeah. what, why is that happening all of a sudden? Um, that's an anomaly. It's not absolutely wrong that a device talk on the internet. Many other devices do, but that particular device never does. And today it did. Um, I want to know about that. I want to figure out why. Here's another example. Um, you've got a, a data center. You've got a lot of databases in there. Those databases talk to servers that pull data in and out of them on a regular basis. Um, and uh, uh, all of a sudden, one day, a connection from a foreign country that has no business all of a sudden shows up connecting to that database. Why is that, right? I, I mean, first of all, you know, you've got to be aware that that's, that's happened. Then you've got to have the tools to figure out, well, why is it happening? Right. Um, um, another example of an anomaly might be uh, more representative of a data movement pattern. Uh, if you see a large data movement from a database in your environment to a server and then movement of that same data out to the internet, uh, for example, what's happening there, right? Why, why is this pattern occurring? It's unusual for uh, this device to both interface with this database to secondly pull this big chunk of data and thirdly to apparently dump it to the internet. That's, uh, that's an issue. Um, so anomalies uh, uh, take all kinds of forms and we look at uh, many different dimensions of behavior to spot them. The, the role that the device is, the group of devices that behave similar to that device, the history of the device, all these things go into our analysis. And how, so if you're looking for an anti-pattern, it makes sense that you would need to be able to have a baseline pattern to begin with. So how do you, if, if I'm a new customer and you don't know my patterns yet, how do you know what's normal and what's not? Uh, we learn them, right? So uh, we don't, uh, there are a very small number of alerts that are just kind of things we want you to know about regardless of how long we've been watching your environment. But most of what we do is watch and learn and figure out the normal pattern. Again, not on a network-wide level, but on a device-by-device -device level. And then after we have what we believe to be a sufficiently stable view of the recurring patterns, to use your word, or behaviors uh, of the devices on your network, then we activate another series of alerts that uh, would trigger should that pattern uh, be um, uh, be violated or be changed. How long does that take? Uh, so it varies based on the alerts that uh, we, uh, we provide. Uh, these are, by the way, very good questions. They're the kind of questions that somebody thinking about uh, buying our service would ask. Some, <laughs> uh, some alerts activate in the first 10 minutes. Uh, the longest uh, uh, alerts take around 30 days to before they'll activate. Um, we need uh, about 30 days of data before we'll actually say we've got enough data for this alert to be confident that should something change, we'll be, we'll be uh, legitimate in firing and detecting it. And since this is SaaS, I'm assuming that, you know, you kind of buy it and you just kind of flip it on? Uh, yeah, I mean, the, uh, the deployment of our service is extraordinarily easy 
in AWS. AWS provides a service that uh, makes it possible for uh, you to, without touching your deployed assets, without deploying any software, without changing anything about your operational environment, simply give us access to something called VPC flow logs. And that's mm. the metadata that we need to, um, to start modeling. Um, and so it's a 10-minute exercise, to be honest. Uh, On-prem, it's a little more involved because we need to gather up NetFlow or something like NetFlow uh, to perform our modeling service. And that involves the deployment of or downloading some free software we provide and then connecting that to your network. Um, It's fairly straightforward. It's not, there's nothing to purchase to do it. Uh, It involves a single bare metal install, but, you know, it, it, it can take a few hours to get it done. Um, so that's the two ways in which people deploy our service. Awesome. That's, that's beautiful. And also with the VPC flow logs and you automatically get history of the things that they've already been doing. So it's not that you're just starting right when you get access. And then, uh, so one more question on this. So are the alerts then they're just emails, SMS, whatever you want. Is that there, there are those things for sure. Um, but there are also built-in integrations with um, other services like PagerDuty and Slack mm. and um, Cisco Spark. Uh, we've got uh, a number of different out-of-the-box integrations that uh, you can basically select from the from the configuration and uh, environment in our, our configuration panel in our tool, and those kinds of things are then available to you. We also output, um, you know, fairly standard industry syslog. Uh, uh, configuration, right. and then people can ingest that data into their uh, their seam, you know, their, uh, their Splunk instance or whatever they're using to process all the other log files they're collecting. Who who's your who is the team that's typically buying this, and who are what types of roles are getting these alerts and responding to them? Two uh, different camps we've we've found ourselves interacting with most frequently. The first one is the obvious one. For the on-prem buyer, there's somebody charged with managing the security of the environment. In very large companies, that's going to be a CISO of some kind, a chief information security officer or somebody on his or her team. Um, in very small companies, that could just be a VP of IT who is you know, part-time sysadmin part-time Windows engineer and part-time security person, right? It just depends on the size of the company and how many different ways they've carved up the roles. In AWS deployments, you certainly have some of those people, but more often than not, we're working with development teams, Mm. the people who are kind of executing a DevOps kind of function, who are scaling out the infrastructure, developing the software, and attempting to secure it. Um, and so uh, the buyer is you know, more on the development side than what you might find in a traditional organization. And again, these are not um, stark contrasts or, or binary situations. We run into CISOs that are working through AWS environments, and we, work, we run into developers in, in typical environments, so, or on-prem environments. So it, it's not um, you know, uh, uh, black or white or stark contrast. It's really just kind of trends that you, you, you know, you see. This sounds great, Brian. Tell me how I could get it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly right. Uh, So one of the things we love is for people to give, uh, start out with trials, right? We, we offer a free trial of our service 
And uh, the way you, you get that is just to go to Cisco security page, uh, navigate through to the StealthWatch cloud and you know, give us about, I don't know, it's about 10 pieces of information. The most important are your company, your name, your email, and, um, and we'll configure you an instance of the service. Um, and you can uh, set it up in your AWS environment and start operating or download the free sensor and turn it on in your on-prem environment and start operating. It is extraordinarily easy. You've got 60 days to kind of evaluate it. We work with you during those 60 days to help you get the most out of the experience. And you know, many, many people have a really good experience with the trial, even if you don't become a customer. But I will tell you that three quarters of the people that try the service ultimately become a customer. And the other 25% are just lazy? Is that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't want to speak negatively about people. But, um, you know, one of the things that we spend a lot of time on, uh, Nikki, is the efficacy of the alerts that we generate. Mm. Many security tools generate lots and lots of data for you to comb through. We don't believe that that's the way that you help people improve their security. Mm. We believe that the way you help people with their security is by giving them very precise, high-efficacy, actionable alerts that really mean something to them. And by the way, we ask people in our portal when they're processing one of our alerts what they thought about the alert that we generated. We ask them very explicitly, was this alert helpful or not helpful to you? And over 90% of the alerts that we generated are rated by our customers as helpful. Wow. So we're stat. really spending time trying to change the equation from what I call human scale uh, security, which is how many analysts can you deploy combing through reams and reams of data to machine scale, how much automation, how much improvement to the quality of the alert that you're generating can be done in an automated fashion. So the people, when you ask for the attention of somebody to go investigate something, they look into that and feel like their time was well spent. That's the criteria that StealthWatch Cloud tries to achieve. That's awesome because there's a lot of noise just it, in every way, shape, or form. So it's true. I just I just think it's beautiful too. And what I really like about this too is is the fit within Cisco. I mean, the umbrella product, the Open DNS, very yeah. similar experience where it's just a you very know true. you point your DNS here and it's on, and now all of a sudden you have instant security. And so I I think the ease of of use of these things are just things that really will help increase the adoption and, and make more secure make more enterprises secure so I, I just just an observation I I'm I'm very impressed but your I think your sentiment is right on Ballard that the um, uh, that we've got to make security easier uh, and in doing so we'll get more adoption large companies have always been able to afford the latest tools, the integration costs, the people costs, the process development maturity that's needed. And even in that world, it's been hard to you know, deliver good security. Medium-sized and smaller companies haven't got, have not historically had a chance. And with tools like Umbrella and with, uh, with StealthWatch Cloud, you've got a much easier adoption and a much more automated solution that that 
that lowers the burden on the company to achieve a, a better level of security. And, um, and we think that paradigm, by the way, works well for large companies too, but, uh, 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 but at least the, the, the medium and smaller companies have a choice now or an option or an opportunity uh, to be better, uh, better secured. And, and so I think you're exactly right. Making things out of the box, dead simple, um, automatically configured so that you don't run into kind of drift over time in terms of the way it's configured and the way you're operating that causes all kinds of uh, uh, bad results. Getting rid of all of that and just making it dead simple is, is a key to success. Excellent. And by the way, thank you for using gender neutral descriptors. I appreciate that. <laughs> Bravo. <laughs> Said he or she, and I was like, yay. Uh, wow, this is this is cool. I'm going to check it out right after this. I, uh, you know, we came into this thought, and we're like, wait, who's, what is Observable Networks? Wait, <laughs> someone, I have no idea. Someone on our team set this up. I'm like, I have no idea who we're talking to today. Uh, yeah. But this, this sounds really awesome. Um, talk to us about the pricing model. Is it per device? Is it per user? Is it, how's it built? Yeah. Uh, so in um, AWS, it's, it's priced based on how much flow log data you send to us. We're processing all of that data, so it's very, um, it's very driven by your usage, which we think is a good paradigm, given that that's the way AWS uh, you know, charges for the services. And by the way, I've said AWS several times, but other public clouds as well are, are in our um, interest, uh, Azure and Google Cloud. All of these represent great opportunities for this kind of next generation paradigm. It's just that AWS has a really good solution for connecting in their VPC flow logs that makes them so interesting. But it's about the log data volume that we're that you're sending. On-prem, we're priced just like StealthWatch. It's about the flow rate. Um, how What rate is uh, new uh, network data, uh, metadata arriving? Um, and that determines the, um, the price point. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Brian. This has been awesome, and I can totally see why Cisco wanted to acquire you guys, and I'm glad that you're a part of Cisco and gals. Well, well thank you very much. I, I've enjoyed the time, uh, Val and Nikki. It's been, uh, it's been a great conversation. You've, you've both asked really good questions, so uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully this turned into a valuable uh, discussion for everyone. Awesome. Everybody say bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining. Bye. See you, Brian. Nice to meet you.